So I'll start, I'll start with a confession. To borrow a term from Christianese, this has been a particularly arid season for me. In fact, when Abuna asked me to prepare something for this evening, my initial inclination was to respectfully, respectfully decline because I felt the well was dry and wasn't sure I could possibly offer anything of value. But from past experience and reason, perhaps God may use my struggle with this dryness for some benefit. After all, he is in the business of making something out of nothing. See the feeding of the multitudes, the story of creation, the healing of the blind man, etc. Trust me, it would be no less a miracle in this case. I'm not sure what it has been, the busyness of life in Southern California, juggling the schedules of work and children, church responsibilities, familial obligations from both near and far, Whatever the reason, I suppose it's irrelevant. Don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining and do not want to sound ungrateful. Most of these things are good things. Most of these things are, in fact, blessings I actually wanted and asked God for. But the reality is the confluence of this stuff has left me with little energy to do much else, to invest in much else. The desire is there, but when it comes time to actually do, I cannot. Unfortunately, this has included my spiritual life, and accordingly, there is no more appropriate representation of my spiritual life than the fig tree of which we read about this morning. And on the next day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if perhaps he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing, but leaves for the time of the figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said, Onto it, no man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. Mark 11, 12 through 24. If any of you sitting here today feel this way, we may ask ourselves, is our faith the same as this fig tree? While God, uh, only God knows for sure, I believe the answer is no. And the reason for this is exemplified not only and specifically within this week, but in fact from the very beginning until now. For me, this week has always served as my Nairus, and Sunday my New Year's Day. This is the end of my spiritual year, and, at, and the start of the next. What I mean by this, that I am traditionally so in awe of the gravity of this week and its implications that I cannot help but examine myself, assess my current state, and try to commit to doing better in the future. It is a time for reflection and rededication. In a very positive way, it's kind of how I felt when I've observed parents and servants in this congregation and marveled at how they raised their children and served this parish. It pushes me to identify my own deficiencies and strive for better. This week, however, presents this on a much grander scale as the agent of action is divine. How can we but look at the words, actions, suffering of Christ and in the face of this complete loving sacrifice, not have a sense of wanting more from ourselves and more for our relationship with God. Jesus suffers, dies, and resurrects for each of us so that we, each of us individually, might attain salvation. Should we not feel indebted to him? Should we not desire to strengthen our bond to him, to please him with our actions and the desires of our heart? Is it not incumbent on us to figure out what has kept us away from it and remove those things from our life? There is so much to change, so much to overhaul. Truly, it is the work of a lifetime. It is a spring cleaning of sorts. Today, we also read, 
and the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small courts, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things away, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. John 2, 13-17. This account serves, among other things, as a reminder for us to examine ourselves, and to drive out what needs to be driven out, and to welcome in what should be made welcome. Thankfully, in most circumstances, God allows us to do this gradually over time. But we have all at one time or another felt the shocks of trials and tribulations when God seems to be beckoning us a little more intentionally, a little more urgently, to clean house of it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit takes away. And every branch that bears fruit prunes that it may bear more fruit, John 15. And perhaps we can echo a prayer I came across from the writings of the St. Paul Brotherhood in the writings on the Holy Blessed. Oh, enter into the temple of my heart to cleanse what you need. How I have waited so long, how I have filled my life, my body, my temple, with such wickedness and atrocity. But surely you can remove all the sin and filth from my life. Support me in this endeavor to cleanse my heart and to do your will. O you, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, take away from my temple any sacrifices that are unpleasing to you. I declare you king of my heart, my life, my soul, my being. You are the high priest of my temple, the Lord of my soul. I offer to you my body as a living sacrifice. Accordingly, as we sit here at the start of Holy Week, let us remember to use this time to reflect not only on the loving sacrifice of the Lord, but on how we can better our relationship with our Creator. Truthfully, this can be challenging. Dedicating and living a life of pruning and devotion to God can sometimes be difficult. It's in the trickery of the devil, where we find ourselves consumed with anything but this objective. Whether it is the work, whether, whether it is work or family, we seem to have a very divided focus, and so we cannot properly focus on that which is most important. As an avid sports fan, I cannot help but think of the single-minded resolve that athletes must have to ascend to the height of their sport. As a basketball fan growing up outside of Chicago and now living in Southern California, I was always struck by the work ethic and dedication of our city's two most notable shooting guards. There were always stories of these athletes, although blessed with talent beyond their peers, waking up early to train and dedicate themselves to perfecting their skills. So on top of their skills was a deep dedication to putting the work in and tra training necessary to achieve greatness. Their greatness as players was built on their fidelity to preparation and hard work. While our Protestant brothers and sisters are quick to point out spiritual success is not formulated and a result of hard work, the lives and practices of our desert fathers at least suggest that the dismissal of this type of work may be somewhat cavalier. How many of us approach our spiritual lives with this fervor, with this dedication? Is not our relationship with God infinitely more important than basketball, or a promotion at work, or whatever it is we may have set our sights on? Should we not wake up early in the morning with thanksgiving and praise? How many of us in our weakness continue to choose something over our relationship with God? How can we continue to do this and expect the results different from the money changers or the victory? 
The more I thought about this, the more the answer presented itself. Before I go further, let me emphatically state that we do indeed have a role to play in all of this. Our effort, our desire is important. But much like we see this week, the burden is carried not by us, but on the back of our ever faithful Lord. And this, I think, is what I've really learned from my own desolation, from my own spiritual dryness. The burden of our salvation has always been shouldered by Christ. Our salvation rests in God's faithfulness. And this is what really resonated with me this year. Our faithfulness is necessary, but God's is paramount. Faithfulness can be defined as the fact or quality of being true to one's word and commitments as to what one has pledged to do, professes to believe, etc. Interestingly, we all often think of faithfulness as an attribute of saintliness or something exhibited towards God. There are countless examples of faithfulness in the Bible. The faithfulness of Noah in building the ark, the faithfulness of Job enduring trials and remaining steadfast in his love towards God, the faithfulness of the early church martyrs, St. Stephen, St. Peter, St. John the Baptist, among many others. All these are wonderful examples of faithfulness of others towards God. And of course, our own church history is bursting at the seams with similar accounts of faithfulness. We marvel at the enduring dedication, love, and commitment to God of the saints, even in the face of trials and persecution, and even unto death. When we step away from the lives of the saints, we still see examples of faithfulness in everyday life. The commitment of a mother to her child, of a husband and wife to each other, of a therapist or nurse or healthcare worker to the well-being of his or her patient, and countless other examples in ordinary life. But if we examine our own lives, and I speak for myself, perhaps I see examples where this faithfulness is lacking and overtaken by selfishness and idolatry. As I approach the new year, these are the instances that convict me in the face of the faithfulness of Christ, as he approaches the cross. I wonder in a very unworthy way of why does he remain faithful to us, to me, in the face of indifference, apathy, and sin? But it is not the entire account, but is not the entire account written in the Bible a testament to the faithfulness of God? As I read through a condensed children's Bible with my five-year-old James moving from story to story, I am astounded at how many times the chosen people of God have left him. I cannot even count the number of times his people doubted him forgot about him, or left him to worship idols. And yet, through it all, he allowed their return. Time and time again, he accepted their repentance and return. And in fact, he does this with us. He does this with me. How many times have I left God? Forgotten about God. Or turned to some form of idolatry. And yet he accepts me back in repentance through his mercy and grace. If we were to juxtapose this level of indifference and betrayal, or shall I even say abusive behavior onto a human relationship, we would expect these relationships to be irrevocably severed. No individual in their right mind would continue to allow their friend to repeatedly steal from them or insult them or deny them in front of others without meaning. And herein lies the divine faithfulness and love of God. From lamentations, through the, Lord, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. 
because his compassions fail me. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So throughout history, we see God's faithfulness to his people. And no more do we see this in the, than in the incarnation of Christ, where God took the form of his creation to live among us, to teach us, to heal the sick, mend the broken, and repair the unrepairable. And no more do we see this continue than in this holiest of weeks. Christ entered Jerusalem knowing that he would suffer and die for us. He remained faithful to the will of his Father, and as importantly, faithful to us, the unfaithful. How can we know this and how can we witness this and still remain unfaithful to him? Again, this is what I struggle with during Holy Week. I take a good look in the mirror and I'm not too thrilled with what I see looking back at me. A bit ashamed, a bit guilty, a bit sad that in this past year I didn't do better to demonstrate to God that I appreciate his love for me, that I did not take his loving that I did not take his loving sacrifice for granted. It is a referendum that causes me to ask in my heart, do I really love God? And if so, how have I demonstrated this love? And this brings me back to, back to yet another reality. Vestally, for all its beauty and all its meaning, is one week of the year. We come to church, dedicate ourselves to a week of prayer, and focusing on Christ. The church has rightfully marked this as a time of solemnity and, at the end, rejoicing. Many of us, in a very well-meaning way, pour ourselves into this week. And this is all well and good. But what about the rest of the year? We must not allow our desire for God to be only manifested one week of the year. Our relationship with God is, of course, enhanced by His very profound deep, but the relationship must be built on the struggles, prayers, desires, dedication, and actions of the rest of the year. What would our relationship with God look like if we pursued the rest of the year with the same fervor we pursued only? I'm not talking about the number of services we attend or the hours spent in church, but our attention to the divine. And why don't we? Isn't our relationship to God that important? Our God is a faithful God, but His faithfulness should not be taken for granted. Not because He needs our love and our faithfulness in return, but because our faithfulness to Him is a measure of our love for Him. In the end, it's reassuring to me to know that as long as my desire is with the Lord, that my heart truly desires to be with Him and to love Him, my salvation lies in His faithfulness. And yet there's something even more unfathomable about this, His faithfulness. Not only has God continually exhibited faithfulness to his creation, the death and resurrection of Christ brings finality and permanence to his faithfulness. Unlike the Israelites wandering the desert, we need not worry if God will be there at the end. In a sense, Christ has given us the conclusion to the story before it is played out. Christ's death and resurrection are, in a sense, an end game which will not be taken back. Once the Son of Man become incarnated and died and resurrected for us, he cemented this. And his faithful faithfulness to us is everlasting. Yes, we must accept this act of grace, but this is a variable point of no return. God has promised us eternal, irrevocable redemption through the cross. While God's faithfulness is most important in terms of its implications for our salvation, his faithfulness also serves as a comfort for all in the present. 
despite our repeated transgression and turning away from you, God's faithfulness is a comfort in our travails. If we are injured or going through difficult times or simply going through a dry spell, we can, because we trust in the fidelity of God's faithfulness, be comforted. Whether it may be at the hand of illness, difficulty within a marriage, or simply a period of spiritual dryness, we know that God is there with us in the room. And this in and of itself should be comforting. He does not leave us. He does not leave us children. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be in your shield. Psalm 91, verse 4. Let us all together take the blessing of the faithfulness of our Lord as he most lovingly and boldly demonstrates for us this holy week. And may we carry this blessing not only this week, but as we continue throughout the year. Let us conclude with a prayer from John Chrysostom. Lord, being human, I sing, but you, being God, have mercy on me. Lord, take heed of your weak, take heed of the weakness of my soul, and help me with your grace. Let your holy name may be glorified in you. <clears throat>